Hello, everyone. I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. We've got Christy Ashwanden on today, and let me tell you a little bit about her. She is a co-host of the podcast Emerging Form and the former lead science writer at 538. She writes the Test Gym Fitness column at Elemental and is a frequent contributor to the Washington Post, Wired, and Men's Health. A finalist for the National Magazine Award, her writing has appeared in Outside, Discover, Smithsonian, and Oh, the Oprah Magazine. She was a high school state champion in the 1,600-meter run, a national collegiate cycling champion, and an elite cross-country skier with Team Rosignol. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Let's start talking about your book. Um, It really focuses on recovery, which is one of my favorite topics Mm -hmm. to talk about with my clients. Why was that an important one for you um, that you thought you needed to write and um, focus on the book? Yeah, sure. So I am a science journalist by you know vocation, and so I'm writing about science all of the time. And but I'm you know on a personal level, a former elite athlete, and mm-hmm. um, had a career doing various sports. And when I look back on my athletic career, you know I really feel like the one thing that sort of limited me was my inability or sort of you know, the fact that I never sort of mastered recovery. And it's something that I got much better at as I went along. But, you know, I sort of look back and thought, gosh, I wish I had known, you know, when I was a college athlete, for instance, what I know now about recovery. And so there's sort of this thing that that's often said to authors, which is write the book that you want to read. Mm -hmm. And this is the book that I wish I had had earlier in my athletic career. And it was really a chance to sort of meld two aspects of myself, you know, this training and um, assessing science and reading scientific papers and talking to scientists and sort of understanding how we know what we know. And then having this experience of having been an athlete who you know, was in the trenches and trying to figure out recovery. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Do you think kind of as an athlete during that time and kind of coaching, do you think recovery was talked about at all? as an athlete? Yeah, so it's very interesting. What I've seen is a a real evolution in the way that recovery is sort of talked about and how it's prioritized. So when I was a more serious athlete in sort of like the 90s and early 2000s, recovery was something we talked about. And I think people on some level understood that it was important. But there was also, I feel like at that time, and this is probably true to some extent now, but there's always kind of a sense, particularly among athletes, that more is better Mm -hmm. and sort of less, there was less of an acknowledgement at that time that recovery was important and that it should be sort of an integral part of your training. But what's happened particularly I would say in the last decade or so is that recovery has become 
um, sort of the target of a lot of marketing and there are mm-hmm. new products and services that didn't exist, you know, back in the 90s um, that are being marketed to athletes. And so on the one hand, it means that now there is marketing, you know, there are marketers telling athletes, you need to recover and, you know, we have these things that you should do, but it's also turned recovery into almost like this separate thing and this active thing. And so, you know, when I was competing, recovery was really, I mean, I say in the book that when I was an athlete, recovery was a noun, Mm -hmm. this state of being you were trying to attain by all the things that you weren't doing. It was like putting your feet up or taking a nap or even just curling up with a book, whereas now recovery has really become a verb. It's Mm -hmm. all these things you're supposed to be doing, your foam rolling, you're using the you know, squeezy pants here, doing some kind of massage. And I, oh my gosh, there were so many, um, like one liners and, and parts of your book that I pulled. And I loved where you, you actually talked about one of the coaches that, um, would have them assess like their stress level at work and in their life and how one coach was like, Nope, I'm not going to push you to do this many hours of training. We're going to have to make it work within um, a shorter amount because you're not going to be able to handle the, the workload that's needed and your body be able to adapt to that. And, um, I laugh how the, the book starts out with her and was it like a um, recovery like clinic? And it was almost like yeah. you were given a menu to decide like, hmm, <laughs> what should I do today? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like a smoothie shop. That's right. I'm sure. <laughs> we're marketing the recovery. Yeah. Oh, it, was, yeah. it was amazing. Yeah. Because there are, I mean, across the country, across the world, there are these recovery, I mean, they're, they're, I get them as recovery spas. Sometimes they're called, <laughs> you know, they're often called recovery centers, but they're basically like gyms, except instead of having exercise equipment, they have all the, these fancy gadgets for recovery. <laughs> so whether that's a therapy chamber, infrared sauna, um, pneumatic compression pants, I mean, it's almost endless, the array of products that are being provided now for this stuff. Oh, wow. So I love in the book where you address the power of placebo. Can you share how that has so much power and how can one actually sort out if whatever they're doing is working for them or if it's the, the power of the placebo? Yeah. Well, so the placebo effect is basically, I, I say in the book, um, I sort of prefer to call it the expectation effect because mm-hmm. when we think about placebos, we're very often sort of think we're like dismissive of it, right? Like, oh, that's not real. It doesn't work. But the placebo effect is real and it's something that can enhance you know, how something works. And I think that that can be a good thing. Like I am absolutely not in favor of people, you know, spending their money and their time on bogus products at the same time. Um, you know, basically how the, the expectation of the placebo effect works is that your sort of expectation about what you're going to be experiencing and what something is going to do for you can actually have a pretty profound impact on your actual experience of that thing. So if I give you a pill and tell you that it's going to ease your pain, you're sort of expecting that that will happen and that can actually expedite things and help. I mean, there are apparently some studies showing that um, giving someone with a, a headache an aspirin or, or a headache uh, medication, that their pain will, will start to ease before the medication has even had a chance to kick in just mm-hmm. because knowing that this is happening 
Um, and so there are a lot of different reasons for this. But particularly with recovery, I think one of the things that I learned is that so much of what recovery is about is about helping you feel better. And so anything that helps you feel better is legitimately helping you work. But what ends up happening is you have a lot of these services and things that that are sort of marketed with these bogus explanations, <laughs> and these bogus things about, you know, massage doesn't help because it's flushing toxins from your muscles. It helps because it really helps you relax mm-hmm. and it helps you check in with your body and get this body awareness. And it's, you know, half an hour, an hour where you're lying there on a table all your muscles relaxing or being worked on where you're not, you know, caught up in all these other stressful activities. So you have to be sort of careful um, not to get pulled in by some of these pseudoscientific explanations that in some cases may not, it may be that the thing works. It's just not working that way. And Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time in the book sort of looking at this and trying to sort out what was real and what isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, great information. And um, now I really want a massage. Like, oh, man, I think like, I've missed that. (laughs) Um, Christy, I love your exploration of a more structured versus intuitive training. What did you find in your research about that? Yeah, so I think what you're referring to here is this idea, there's kind of this idea that you make a training plan, and then you just stick with it. And you have to do, you know, certain amount of hard training or whatever. And those could be really great places to start. But I sort of make the argument in the book that the most important skill that any athlete can develop is the ability to read their own bodies. And Mm -hmm. you only benefit from the training that you can recover from. And so you have to be sort of constantly assessing your your state of recovery and your, your state of how you're feeling. And so um, there are periods in your training. I don't want to get too deep into the training stuff, but most athletes these days are using periodized plans. So in the early season, you're maybe building a base. Um, whereas in the, the race season, you're maybe sharpening and trying to really focus on speed and things like that. Um, but there are certain times in your training where you're really trying to to present an overload and you're trying to really stress your body so that you can provoke these adaptations. Um, you know, it's really the recovery process that makes you fitter, faster, stronger. This isn't happening at the moment that you're doing the training. It's sort of your body responding mm-hmm. to that stress by building itself up. And so, but if that process isn't happening and if you're overtraining and you're doing too much and you're not recovering, then you're not benefiting from that training. And all you're doing is making yourself tired. And so it's really important that you just continue to check in and that you adapt. And so you may have had a plan that you were going to do three interval sessions this week. But if after the second one, you're so cooked and your body's not responding, then there's really no point in doing that third session. What you really need is a a day off or an easy workout or whatever it is that you're feeling um, that your body will respond to at that point. And so it's really just important to develop the sense of how your body is responding to the stuff that you're doing. And this is not an easy thing. I mean, it's something that really takes paying close attention over time. And this is where a good training diary can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And paying attention not just to how many minutes or miles you did, but also to how you're feeling and how you're responding. And, you know, it turns out, this is really interesting, that mood is one of the best indicators of recovery that we have. And so I think we've all experienced this when you're training really hard 
Um, sometimes it can make you a little bit moody or depressed or, you know, your mood changes and that's a sign that your body's under stress. And so it's okay to do that sometimes, but if you're chronically feeling in that, that state, it means that you need some more rest. Mm -hmm. And I, I really appreciated when you started talking about overtraining, um, Mm -hmm. almost as an injury and some of those examples from athletes where it may have taken them a couple months of adjustment, but there was that, um, I can't remember the name, but the one particular athlete where it took almost a whole year um, yeah. to recover from overtraining. And mm-hmm. I think athletes really need to, to hear that. It's it going to be a time. long injury yeah. to get back from. Yeah, I mean, overtraining is really something where you're digging yourself into a hole and you mm-hmm. don't get out of there in a, a minute. I mean, it's something that can take much longer. You know, you basically, as an a serious athlete are always sort of approaching that line and you want to get close to that line. But as soon as you go over and as soon as you sort of overdo it, there's no going back. And so it's always a better choice to be slightly undertrained than overtrained because if you're undertrained, you know, you still have uh, a little way to go and you can, you can still do more um, to get there. But once you're overtrained, you're just sort of back to square one. And I think that's something that a lot of athletes don't recognize. They think, well, if I get overtrained, I'll just rest a day or something. And no, it's not like that. You don't, you don't get Mm. back to that fitness (laughs) that you had right before the injury or right before the overtraining. You have to go back to square one. Mm -hmm. Man, I really like that quote. (laughs) It's better to be undertrained than overtrained. Dug a hole can see some of my athletes being, I don't think yeah, so. I'm going to disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. But you have a yeah. really good point. It's so hard to get out. I mean, our body becomes so depleted and then injury and whatever that um, it takes more time than. Well, yeah. there, there are so many examples of athletes who don't get over it. I mean, it's not, You're right. you know, some athletes and it depends on the extent of the overtraining, but it's definitely something. I mean, this is a huge risk and this can be a career ending thing. I mean, in the exactly. book, I talk about Ryan Hall and what happened with yeah. him and it really, mm-hmm. you know, his, uh, his overtraining that he experienced really, you know, probably ended his career early, which is, you know, kind of tragic. It is. It's devastating for an athlete. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And for us who love the athletes them, and yeah. watching them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so curious. So after all of this research, what are some of your go-tos <laughs> for recovery and why? Can you share a couple that uh, you really love? Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the number one thing is sleep and making sleep. You, everyone knows that sleep's important. And I have even had people like, I got a comment someone oh this book sucks it just says you need to sleep more and it's like yes you need to sleep more like everyone i doubt that it. you're sleeping right, right. Sorry, even, no magic pill i know i've even had on my book tour I, i'll never forget this one guy raised his hand after my talk and he said okay so you said sleep is really important but what if you can't sleep like what's the next and i said no 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 like let's go back to like, that yeah there's nothing else that is as effective. But what I think, you know, what makes this so important is it's not just we all know that we need to sleep more, but I think people are really bad about actually doing it. And I think Uh that the the biggest key here is to truly make sleep a priority and to sort of, and this is an individual thing too. So I'm sort of more of a night owl. I'm of course married to an annoying morning person. (laughs) (laughs) I've got got one of those. (laughs) I'm married to one. Are you Uh, you a morning person? I'm a morning person. Oh, my husband's turned into I'm a I'm not night surprised owl. by he that. He says I'm obnoxious in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so 
<laughs> you know, I figured out a way to sort of arrange my life and arrange my daily schedule and things so that I am I am sort of paying some respect to my body's natural cycles. You know, I'm not trying to go to bed at nine o'clock every night. It's just not in me. I can't do that. If I do that, I lie in bed. I can't sleep. And then that prevents me from sleeping better because I'm going to bed too early. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, I'm lucky in that I don't have to get up at 6am every morning, you know, whatever. Anyway, but my point is that I figured out a way to get like, I know that I need eight hours of sleep. If I get six hours, I'm really a wreck. And it's something that takes days to get back over. Mm-hmm. And so I really make it a priority. And, you know, back when uh, we could all travel and we were traveling, remember those days? Yeah. Um, but, you know, way back then I would, I really did some things that made a huge difference. I decided at some point that I was no longer going to take those really early morning flights because what I noticed is that every time I did that, I was wrecked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to make things worse, usually I was uh, traveling to another time zone. Usually it was a time zone to the east, which meant that I was already going to be sort of wrecked <laughs> sure. in the morning. And so, you know, the last thing I needed to do was get a 6 a.m. flight to go to New York where I have to get up and, you know, be at a meeting at at, even if it was 10 a.m., that's 8 a.m. My body time, I haven't had enough sleep, you know, whatever. It's mm-hmm. So just making sure that sleep is something that is non-negotiable for you. In the same way, you know, I think athletes are really good at making their training non-negotiable. Well, your, your sleep sure. is an important, crucial part of your training. And in the book, I talk about a friend of mine, uh, Steve Magnus, who's a, a, a college uh coach and he had followed one year um a bunch of his athletes he had them fill in all this data about themselves and track and you know they they collected all kinds of stuff but the thing that really made a difference and that totally tracked with how people were performing his runners were performing in app and practice but also in meets was how well they were sleeping like it was really remarkable Hmm. and the thing that was really interesting is that those athletes when they saw that it also was something it was sort of like, oh, now you can recognize it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this is something that athletes can do for themselves. You know, pay attention to your sleep, keep a record of it and then watch and see, because I think once people start getting enough sleep, it's really profound the impact that it can have on their performance, their feeling of well-being and their ability to train hard. I mean, that's the thing, too. If you want to be out there training hard, you need to get that sleep so that your body's ready for it. Mm-hmm. You make some good points. I'm just thinking of, you know, when athletes are traveling different time zones and how mm-hmm. important it is to take that into account. Um, yeah, of the no. sleep aspect when we are traveling to different areas for for competitions. Absolutely. Yeah. So we always wrap up each um, interview with how you live out the fit philosophy. So we know recovery is going to be a big part of that. So how do you balance performance, health, intellect, and time for self? Yeah, I love this question so much. <laughs> I think it's something that every athlete should really be thinking about. And you know, I'm just I'm just a recreational athlete at this point, but I feel like um you know, one thing that I think is really crucial, and I recommend this for all athletes, is to have a daily relaxation ritual Love and it. to have some sort of time in your day that is set aside for checking in with your body, sort of a reducing stress, but a time that is like low stress. And for me, I have a couple of things that I do 
And this time of year, I have two, basically. One is every morning, um, my husband and I walk our dog up the hill. We have this nice little walk that we do. And it's really great because it's um, a time to uh, just think about the day ahead. It's sort of a bonding experience with my husband and my dog. But it's also a chance to sort of check in with my body. If I'm walking up the hill and my legs feel really tired, I know that I'm not recovered from yesterday's workout. So that's a really good thing. But then I also have in the evenings... um, I make sure that I work from home as we all do now, I guess. <laughs> I make mm-hmm. sure that I have a, a really hard and fast um, every day. I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop working at this particular time and that's it. And separating work from uh, the rest of my life and then having a ritual. So my husband's a winemaker and this time of year mm. we like to sit on the porch in the evening and have a glass of wine and mm-hmm. watch the sunset. And it is just as wonderful as it sounds, but it's just a time where I'm not feeling this um, pressure to be productive. There's no expectation that I need to be doing something. Mm-hmm. I think that we're at a point in our society where we're always go, go, go. And yeah. there's a sense that you always have to be consuming something or thinking about something. And I think it's really important to have time where you're just truly physically relaxing, but mentally relaxing too, where you're letting your mind sort of wander and just being alone or together with someone else, but with your own thoughts Mm -hmm. is just really important. Yeah, I agree. I've been talking so much about the need for like ritual and some structure Mm -hmm. um, during this time. And also very convenient to be married to a winemaker. So I I, I understand how lucky I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Christy, thanks so much for being on. We're going to um, put in our show notes um, how they can access your book and um, connect with you. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking with you both. Yes, you too. Keep safe out there. Thanks. You too. Take care. Bye, Christy. Bye. Today's episode is brought to you by Yours Truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as REDS, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com. Bye, queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fit for a Queen. And Hashtag Fit for a Queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, queens.